out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist and artist and songwriter Pepe Castro, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. He was um, considered one of the early pioneers of psychedelic garage rock with a band titled or called The Blues Magoos. And um, since then, which were a band formed in the Bronx, New York City, during the mid-60s, and he's been in music ever since, has been in lots of different projects, different bands, and he's still making music today, so I'll send you, or I'll include the link to his um, website. But this is the interview, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and the moment that life changes. Well, you know, the, the moment you sort of hear a record on the radio that changes everything. Anyway, Pep, it's over to you. Well, my musical awakening um, was always as a child, Joe, you know, uh, 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 and I predate you. I'm born in 49, so I'm now the ripe old young age of 73. Yeah. And... Um, and so my influences were great as a child, you know, because the the uh, a hit parade in those days, um, it was wide open and everything was so different. So I grew up with doo-wop groups and great songwriters and stuff like that. And um, a a guitar chord came to my hands uh, when I was uh, thirteen years old. Right. And it came in the 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 uh, the guise of a church play that I was supposed to be uh, uh, an air guitar player uh, doing a, a song by the Kingston Trio, which was a really huge folk group at the time. And uh, the minute I learned that first E minor chord off of somebody, it's like a zipper opened up in the sky and it's like... <gasps> This is it, you know, because I always loved singing as a child. Right. You know. So were your were your parents musical? No, no. My dad was born in Bogota, Colombia, and died when I was five months old. So I was born Emilio Castro, and then I got adopted when I was four years old to my stepfather, which was a German name. So uh, the 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 histories of bad enough. I'm a Gemini, but between Emilio Castro and Emil Fielhelm, I kind of I kind of had a vortex of confusion growing up as a child. And um, my mother was artistic in a in a drawing sense, but she had a very challenged life. She was born in 1907 and was not allowed to have a normal life until she was 27 years old. She had a stricture on her lung, which in those days, it meant diphtheria, rheumatic fever, pneumonia. If she caught any one of those things, she would die. So her whole childhood was tutored yes. as, a, as a child. And she was from some kind of New York aristocracy, I would say. You know, I mean, I don't relate to it much now, but, um, but she had enough wherewithal with her parents to where she was um, privately tutored and stuff like that. So, no, I just had a passion when, as a child, listening to the radio, you know, 
anything that came on the radio just knocked me out and I would sing all day long. And when I learned that um, first guitar chord, the aha moment for me was that I realized I could be two people. I could be the singer and the guy who, in a, who accompanies the singer. I got a little fly going around here. Um, yes. And uh, uh, Florida, you know. And um, <laughs> that was a real revelation for me. And from that moment on, nothing else existed in my life. Not my schooling, not anything, not being razzed, not being every kid in the neighborhood tell me I sucked as I learned how to play guitar. You know, uh, it was just, I was completely, uh, had an Olympic mentality. Yes, uh, absolutely. That's the play. That's, and I taught myself how to play guitar. Fortunately, by the time I was 17, I had my first hit record. And um, that changed life considerably. Yes, and, absolutely. Um, Did you have any old brothers or sisters that kind of gave you any influences? I or... had one. I have one biological brother who uh, is not in the musical world. He was older than I. So he had to get out into the world and and while I was still a kid, being able to not have the pressures of life. And then I had three stepchildren, uh, 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 brothers and sisters, from the Thielhound side, from the, uh, uh, my stepfather. The German but, side. Yes, yes. But my stepfather had three heart attacks and a stroke, and my mother nursed him for 26 years. So it's really kind of crazy. By the grace of God, I was able to take care of my mom for the last 15 years of her life. And that was a joy for me to be able to give the give back. Yes, and, absolutely. And fortunately I was doing well enough to where I could afford to, um, you know, take care of her bills and everything. That's so, fantastic. So was, yeah, your, was, was your stepfather, um, he's, he was German. Did, so was he in America during the, the 50s and 60s then at that stage? Yes, he was born in America. He was born in America. And apparently my mother and him knew each other from childhood. They both became widowed. And then they pooled the, the kids together. So um, I was born in Manhattan and grew up on 106th and Broadway till I was four years old. And then mom remarried and shuttled me off to the Bronx to where all of a sudden I had, you know, new brothers, brothers and a sister. And I grew up in the Bronx for 10 years from the age of four to 14. Yes. Um, it was kind of a, a, um, a challenged existence because my mom uh, fell on hard times and she had five kids to raise and an invalid husband. So, you know, I had hand-me-downs times the three brothers, you know, <laughs> patches, holes in the pants and things like that. So the Bronx was not exactly my uh, uh, fabulous stomping ground. And by the time I was 14, I was out of there. I left home at 14 yes. um, for the streets of Greenwich Village to where I grew up in the school of hard knocks. But um, fortunately, I was on to the music thing and uh, started, uh, you know, my first band and uh, the Blues Magoos. The Blues Magoos. I'm, yeah. just kind of, I'm just kind of curious because I grew up, you know, in the depths of East Anglia in the UK and um so I you know obviously I was a bit too young for the the, the second world war but there was a there was a sort of second world war aerodrome which we used to play in or on and um, there was all the Americans came over and they stayed stayed on the base there was like 3,000 but there was like about 20 plus of these aerodromes so how did um just kind of curious how did a, a German national sort of 
live in in America? Did was that tricky for him? I'm just you know just a I've never come. Well, across I this. think he was first generation American. Right. So his parents probably came over from the First World War. He did serve uh, uh, in the army. That um, Thielham was in the army. He was a sergeant uh, in World War Two. So you know. So he was a veteran and did did serve in World War II. So he was very Americanized. You know, right. it wasn't really like um, there was no dialogue, uh, dialogue and dialect in his speaking and things like that. So it was pretty much American, German, German, American, you know, yes. as my mother, my mother's descent goes back to Carlisle, England and Bordeaux, France, um, uh, between the greats. Um, you know, uh, my family line on my mother's side goes back to uh, 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 a name called the Richardsons. And um, and he was pretty prominent in the Civil War and stuff. And um, so there's a like I said, there's a generational history there with, the uh, you know, memorabilia that yes. I keep in my house in New York, which is That's kind of fun. It must be fantastically interesting. God, what what an amazing amount of history. Anyway, look, 63, you, you, you hit your E chord and everything's starting to work. But also at the same time, you know, there was like the birth of the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, and then a few years later, the Who. So did you quickly get, was all that music suddenly filtering through your mind? Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, well, once it came across the shores, and came here. I remember uh, even before the Beatles were released in the United States, I remember seeing the pretty things oh, yes. on TV in America. And that was like a, a shock. So um, I kind of immediately got it with the two of the other guys um, uh, from the Magoos that we, we started the band with. And we were heavily into the British invasion. Um, so I would say we were the first wave of American bands to embrace that psyche, you know, the the long hair, starting wearing boots, you know. Um, we listened to everything, everything that came out, you know, uh, which was a treasure trove mm. of creativity, you know. And but when you coupled that with what was going on in America, it was like whew, it was so wide, you know. Like it was amazing to see on Manfred Mann records that, you know, they would use some of the well-known songwriters of the day, you know, uh, Cynthia Wheel and um, I forget her, and Barry Mann and stuff. And so we got educated very quickly as to like, wow, what's going on here? You know, and it was it was a, a great overview to see. I mean, by the time you start you know, by this time, I'm already in it and entrenched in it. And then you've got um, the Stones, the Beatles, the Animals, Dave Clark Five, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Manfred Mann, the Kinks. I mean, and not one act sounded anywhere near like the others. No, this is true. This is amazing. Because you're you know, slightly the same age, I think a little bit younger than than people like David Bowie and Lemmy from Motorhead. When they used to talk about their early musical moment, they always both said Little Richard and then, you know, Eddie Cochran and Elvis Presley. Did did people like that sort of also have an influence on you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, and 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 even before them, you know, uh, because I'm a child growing up in America and 
I'm listening to everything from Motown to, uh, you know, uh, to, to the blues artists, to the, uh, you know, I mean, definitely, I mean, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, I mean, all those guys were running around while I was running around with a hit record in 67, you know, I'm still going out on the road meeting Bo Diddley and, and you know, and you run into these people that were still functioning and still going. So by the time you look at the great songwriters and the great singers of the day, oh my God, there were so many, I mean, early band or early singing acts like the Platters were like, yes. oh, oh, you know, I mean, you know, my prayer, it's like, if I sung that once, I sung that a million times as a kid. Uh, uh, guys like Gene McDaniel's Tower of Strength. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, oh, my God. Kisses Sweeter Than Wine was, uh, um, you know, the Bobby Darrens. I mean, all the stuff was blowing up like crazy. So, yeah, it was a musical smorgasbord, you know, uh, back then. But the British invasion changed the whole deal. Yes, absolutely. Did you, as the sixties progressed? I mean, I know you you were sort of um, you got the sound the sound of the band came together quite quickly, but the musical and the cultural changes of the sixties are quite something, aren't they? They go from sixty two, sixty three, which is it looks very black and white. Obviously, in reality, it wasn't. But then by sixty six, there's the sort of the psychedelic period that starts to come in. Sixty seven, there's the the summer of love and. You had, I think it was in San Francisco, the gathering of the tribes on Golden Gate with people like Tim Leary and Gins, uh, Allen Ginsberg and, you know, uh, the Grateful Dead and all those guys. And then in the UK, there was the 14-hour Technicolor Dream in the Alley Pally with Pink Floyd and Arthur Brown. Did, 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 was the psychedelic kind of movement quite big for the, the, the blues magoos? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt, we were um, we were at the forefront on the East Coast, you know. But it, the the trip for me was that um, I was kind of like the baby of the scene. Yeah. So when I'm in the village at 14 years old, you know, the older folks, you know, Richie Havens, the Love and Spoonful, Dylan, you know, uh, people like that, Hendrix. Um, these were the people I saw every day. You know, it was not unusual for me to be in a room with T Timothy Leary and Ginsburg and Marsha McLuhan and acts like the thugs, yes. which are probably most people don't even realize. But um, the great thing for me now in looking back over my lifespan, because, you know, all of a sudden now I ended up here and I'm going like, wow. I've been able to do this my whole life. I've had many million little incarnations and, you know, people go, oh, the legendary Pepe Castro. And I'm like, and and now I'm starting to look at myself and say, well, geez, I've been around all these decades. You know, I really have done this. And in looking back, I realized that I witnessed firsthand the village, the scene in Greenwich Village in New York, go from folk to electric. Yes. Which was which was huge, you know, though, so, you know, I mean, when I went down to the village, uh, uh, Freddie Neal, Phil Oaks, Tim Harden, Dave Van Ronk, I mean, all these guys were playing the coffee houses, you know, they were all sitting, but all of a sudden, everybody wanted to be in a band, you know, they like, you know, in English sex, let me see if I can get rid of that. There we go. <laughs> um, sorry about that. Right. English, English acts, 
were starting to come across the pond and America was embracing it just like the rest of the world. It was so fresh, even though the inception was probably from American blues artists, you know, out in the field, their inspirations was that, but they repackaged it and branded it in such a way that it was so controversial, like when the Beatles came to New York, when the animals came to New York, when the stones came to New York, you know? Yes. And obviously you went from, you said the Bronx to Greenwich Village. What was Greenwich Village like at that stage? Well, it was in transition, you know, um, uh, sexuality, flower power, weed, acid, all these things were just starting to bubble under in the village and people were starting to experiment. And then you had the war going on. And in America, in America, everybody I knew, including myself, was getting drafted into the army. Yes. Because of, uh, because of Nam, it wasn't like you had a choice, you know? You gotta, you gotta, if you turned 18, when I turned 18, I got a train token in the mail that said, report to Whitehall Street, you know, uh, for your physical and your immediate induction into the armed forces. <laughs> you know, I guess, I guess fortunately for me, um, you know, at that age, you can't process too many things, you know, and I was always a rebel. I was not somebody that embraced school. I embraced knowledge, but on my in my own way yes. and going to a different drummer, you know, um, but school was not for me. Um, and and so I got inducted into the armed forces. Fortunately for me, when I went there, because I had no high school whatsoever, I mean, it's like I didn't not, not only did I not graduate high school, I just never even went. As a matter of fact, I was a truant dodging detectives, even in the Night Owl Cafe, because I was a truant. I was not legally allowed to be on the streets of New York right. um, at my age. So uh, fortunately for me, what happened was there's a very wonderful man who saved my life. Um, uh he finally found me in the village and he was a truant officer. And he basically came up, he didn't seem threatening, he didn't seem like a detective. So when he caught me outside and he started talking to me, he said, listen, he goes, I can see you're not on the streets. I see you're up here, I see you're doing something. He goes, but if you don't work with me, they're gonna put you away in a reformatory. And so, you know, if you wanna make my life easy, you know, I'll try and help you as best I can, but you have to work with me. So mm. what he did was, he, at this point in time, it was just my mom. Uh, my stepdad was pretty much a, a, an invalid, you know. And so he said to me, he said, um, if I could get you legally signed out of the school system, do you think your mom would co-sign, at least as a parent? I said, you know what? I think she would, you know. And so he goes, great. That's great. He goes, if you can do that, your mom can do that. He goes, I will get you legally signed out of the school system so you don't have to worry about this. I said, great. He goes, when are you going to be 16? And I went, uh-oh. Um, this is now two months before my 15th-year-old birthday. So I said, uh, I'm going to be 15 in two months. And then his face drops. And he realizes that he can't even sign me out of school. This guy was so kind that he said, look, I tell you what. He goes, you get your mother to sign off. You come back to me to the school system for one day. He goes, you come with me. I'll pick you up. I'll drive you up there. Everything else. He goes, you come with me for one day and I will forge your birth certificate 
so that when you turn 15, I will make it that you were turning 16 and I will legally get you signed out of the school system. And he did that for me. Which was, which was like, that was like, oh, I'm free. I don't have to run away from detectives looking for me to put me away uh, in a place called the Children's Village up in Dobbs Ferry. So that man saved my life. Yeah. So how you did know? you skip the draft then? How did that? I evaded the draft by not having an education. Right. Number one. And I was a stoned out hippie to begin with. So when I walked up there, they sent me to a psych and they wanted to, to like, wait a minute, this kid doesn't exactly look like army material for us. And, um, you know, and they asked me a few questions. And I said, well, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, um, uh, no, I, I, I never went to high school. And they were like, next, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And so, uh, and so I had gone to the, after they evaluated me, they sent me to the nurse and they said, here, go see the nurse. And, and um, you know, uh, you can have a meal on the army if you want. I was like, oh, okay. So I went to the nurse and when I got to the nurse, I remembered all these older guys in the village in all these bands that were getting drafted and they were like swallowing tinfoil to look at ulcers in their stomach and everything else because the last thing they, they couldn't imagine themselves fighting or being yes. in a war. You know, um, it was so uh, unconscionable to do that to people that were in the flower movement and all that stuff. And uh, and so I'd always heard they'd always said to me, if you make it to the nurse, you're in good shape. And I remember going to the nurse and, and she looked at me. She said, you want lunch? It's on the arm. I said, no, no, thank you. She And I said, so um, what am I? What's the deal? She looked at me and, and, and with an Afro-American woman, she went, honey. Even if it's World War Three, you ain't going to hear from the army. <laughs> God, that must be. And I went, oh, my God. And I walked out of that place thinking to myself, thank God I don't have to go kill. Thank God I don't have to do this. I can still do music. And, you know, meanwhile, I get older and you become a, a citizen of the world and you start understanding world politics a little more. And you go, you know, like, you know put an AK-47 in my hand right now and I'll go defend America, you know, <laughs> in a nanosecond, of course, they don't want me. They want the young kids, yes. you know, but, um, you know, I'm very, uh, I'm very conscionable because the, my, uh, my gift came from God, you know, it became, I learned that chord in, in a church and I never forgot it. And so yes. to me, mu music is really a very spiritual journey. Well, to have that, you know, to have that in your life is uh, not everyone gets it. So, um, yes. But then when you're younger, you can't always appreciate it, can you, as well? So it's often a bit tricky. So um, Oh, you're mindless. You don't have something called wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You know. And that's always tricky. When did you first see Jimi Hendrix play? Did you get to see Hendrix up close in the village? Well, oddly enough, uh, I can boast that Jimmy used to come in on a Sunday afternoon and jam with us in the Night Owl Cafe because what the Night Owl Cafe owner did, he ran things round the clock. So even on Sunday afternoons, he would let the bands come in and rehearse on a Sunday afternoon. And, you know, there's no alcohol. It's a coffee house. And so he wouldn't make it like a show, but he, he would charge people to come in a small cover charge to see the bands rehearse, you know, and Hendrix at that point in time, when I was playing the night owl, 
uh, Jimmy was Jimmy James and the Blue Flame. Yes. And he was playing around the corner in a cafe walk, you know, and his hair, his hair was all processed. This is before Chas Chandler experienced him yes. and um, changed his life, you know. So, uh, and he, but Jimmy was still playing with his teeth and all this stuff over there. And so he was, he was Jimmy James in the Blue Flame, you know, and he would come in on a Sunday afternoon and, and jam with us, you know, which was great. So I would see Jimmy all the time. But then when he went to England and came back with the fro and the experience and everything and walking around and, you know, he was psychedelicized and the whole thing, <laughs> you, you know, um, the, the, the village was very happy for him. Yes, well, I would imagine it must have been the Monterey Pop Festival did change everything, really, didn't it? So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It did. Well, Jazz Channel did just by experiencing them. But you see, in New York, the New York culture was that the girls that would hang out in the clubs in New York, they were ape. They went ape over the English bands. So, when the English bands would come, it was pretty predictable. You know, they do the Ed Sullivan show or they do this show or they do that. And it was pretty, you could pretty much find out where they were yes, and what hotel they were in. And so, and we had a group of girls that we called the Brooklyn Bouncers who were these big girls from Brooklyn that loved the English bands. And when the English bands came to New York, the first thing they wanted to do was go to the village. If they had a minute for themselves, they wanted to go to the village and see American bands. Yes, absolutely. You know, show. Um, so that was my entree to some of them. Like they would bring down the animals. And I remember meeting Chaz Chandler and um, uh, uh, Steele, um, what was his name, and the, uh, the guitarist uh, back then. And every week a different band would come in. And so they would want to see the, the, the American bands. And at that point in time, the Night Owl Cafe was the club all the bands wanted to work up to uh, because that's where people were being discovered out of, like the Love and Spoonful and the Magoos and yes. things like that. So, so what, it was it was a it was a it was a great, great fun time. But yes. the the village did get crazy because of riots and things, and uh because as the war progressed, so did um, you know, uh uh, sort of the tensions in the street. And what was the influence of the mafia like in New York at that stage? Oh, they the mafia ran ran the village. The club right. owner was Joe Mara. Um, in those days, you could walk around the village and you would see the Italian social clubs, and you know uh, the attorneys were, were all in storefront and things like this. And the city always had a pact with with the mafia. It's like if things got too bad, they'd say, hey, shut down the riots and we'll do this for you or, you know, things like that. So it was very political. And, um, yeah, the mafia would could shut down the riots in 24 hours. Yes, they were they were they were able to just you would see it overnight. They'd cut a deal with the city, you know, and boom, all was quiet. Were most of the clubs run by the mafia at that stage. What's that? The clubs. Were the clubs mostly run? The, the entertainment? Was that mostly run by the mafia? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, for instance, I remember one day, Joe Mara, who owned the Night Owl Cafe, kept a big baseball bat behind the desk, desk like, 
anyone came in and was like an undesirable, he'd go out with that bat and just club them. You know, I mean, it was <laughs> it was crazy. And so one day some guy showed up and um, I remember Joe Mara bringing us back uh, into the kitchen. And he said, listen, you guys, uh, there's going to be a guy hanging out here for the next few days. His, uh, you know, his name is, uh, uh, you know, uh, Big Joe, and uh, he's a front page man. So he's just going to be lying low for a few days. But, you know, don't, don't pay him any mind. <laughs> yeah. and, and he was hiding some mafia guy from New Jersey or something, you know. Yeah, the clubs, the cl well, you know, they ran New York. The garbage, yes. you know, the, the waste the management, all that kind of stuff. There was all, you know, it it was all mafia run. You know? Blimey, it's a, it's another world. So coming back to the band, then the the album you went into the studio was at sixty six. Yeah. To do psychedelic lollipop. I mean, it's 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 kind of perfect as it as it is. Did you um, had you rehearsed and demoed all the tracks before going into the studio? Well, we were playing the stuff live at the night out. So yeah, by the time we got discovered by the producers, which were called Long Hair Productions back then, Bob Walden, Art Polhemus, um, yeah, we were pretty rehearsed. We were we were you know. We were playing the stuff live, uh, you know. We were writing songs in the basement of the Albert, the infamous Albert Hotel or Hotel Albert. Yes. Um, yeah, where they let us rehearse in the basement. We all lived in the hotel, and we literally rehearsed downstairs in the basement of the hotel, which was kind of cool. Um, yeah. uh, a, a funny uh, piece. As a matter of fact, um, Uncut Magazine. Yes over by you guys is yep. getting ready to do like a 40 page piece on the Magoos. Probably going to take about six months. And um, that's, they had just done a piece on a band called the magicians. Right. Which was one of the, and you know, I was called to um, do an interview for that. To, uh, I guess validate or confirm a lot of the stories and add my own two cents. So they have been in touch with the, uh, uh the, the my old manager bob wild back then and um apparently it's going to be a, a huge piece um with uncut and blimey uh, that is which, just amazing timing i didn't i had no idea that they were yeah. I, i'll give you a bit of trivia when the blues magoos were playing in the night owl cafe um we walked past a a venue uh that was called um trudy heller's and it was on 6th Avenue and 9th Street or something like that in Manhattan. And we heard a band coming out of the... Sorry about that. No, and um, we heard a band coming out of uh, the doors. And it sounded really good. And I wasn't even old enough to go in there because it was, it was a place that sold alcohol. You know, but Ronnie and Rob with with me and we, we went up to the we went up to the front door and said, like, wow, who's that? That's kind of really cool. You know, so we asked the guy, could we go in? The guy get, let us go in and stand and see them for a minute and stuff like that. And um, after the set, we got to talking to them. And uh, there was a guy on a Hammond organ with this blonde platinum hair and a, and, a, and his brother was playing guitar. And they were called the Almond Joys. Yes. And we became friends. 
we put them up at the Albert Hotel. They stayed with us and things like this. They wanted to see us play. They came down to the island, saw us play. And we were the guys who were instrumental to telling them because it was uh, Greg and Dwayne Allman. And we were the guys that said, man, you got to not play the bars. No, screw that. Drop out. Start writing songs. Change the name of the band. Do all this kind of stuff. And um, really, the Magoos were one of the instrumental people there that um, uh, that were instrumental in uh, Greg and Dwayne uh, kind of going their own path and becoming the Almond Brothers. Yes, God damn, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. The, the influence. I mean, it, obviously, I mean, this period of the band is so intense. I mean, you must be touring and playing live all the time. You bring out one album a year throughout that decade. I mean, what was it like for you as, a, as both as a person and, and the dynamics within the, the lineup of the Magoos? Well, the dynamics was that we toured for the entire summer of 1967, which was the big tour of that year. And it was Herman's Hermits, The Who, The Blues Magoos. This was the first tour that broke The Who in the United States. Right. So, so you know, because it was like, we're going out playing civics every night for the entire summer. We all went on this big DC-10 airplane. We all went together, all three bands, the the merch merch guys, the whole deal, the roadies, all that kind of stuff. The roadies were in bus and truck. They were driving to to the gigs, but the, the acts were flying together and stuff like that. And so, um, uh, yeah, so I have a fair amount of Keith Moon stuff. Or yes. Me. What was it like to meet people like a young dangerous? Was it? <laughs> it was just sheer danger. You know, uh, Moon was dangerous. You know, and and I was um, I loved uh, the Who. You know, I mean, it was like the Blues Magoos. We had electric suits, so we're 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 going out with our electric suits. We opened up the show in most all the venues. Every one or two other venues, um, the Who opened. But for the most part, most of the shows, the Magoos opened the show. The yes. Who came on, destroyed the place. And then poor Peter had to go out. But the audience was so freaky because half the audience, if you had a 30,000-seater, 15,000 would be freaks wanting to see the Magoos and the Who. And the other 15,000 would be um, kids that were going with their parents to see Peter, <laughs> Peter Noon and yes. Herman's Hermits. So it was like the most diverse crowd you ever saw in your life, you know, but it was an amazing tour, um, you know, day in and day out. It was high octane, high octane. And, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, I gave Pete Townsend um which now I can look back and go, oh, my God, what did I do? I had a Stratocaster, a Fender Stratocaster, that was 00034, the 34th Stratocaster ever made, probably worth about 350 grand in today's world. And Pete, we're out in the belly of America, and he's smashing guitars like crazy. And the roadie's staying up at night putting a Gibson neck onto a fender body just for the moment when they smash and do things like that and they're running out of body parts they can't, they couldn't even find guitars in local uh, uh pawn shops and everything and then one night he had no guitar 
he had no guitar left. And I went, I was in such who shock, you know, like, oh my God, these guys are like insane. I never saw anything like this. I gave him that guitar. I gave him that and he smashed zero 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 thirty four Stratocaster. And it lasted for a few nights with a, a um, you know, with a Gibson neck or this and that and things like that. But I, and I think I bought the guitar off of Zal Yanofsky from the Love and Spoonful. Blimey, easy crazy. That's such a story, isn't it? That's such a moment. Did, was, was the band, you know, because you were, you obviously brought out album after album during that decade. Was there a lot of pressure to kind of, you know, write another album? There was of definitely. Material? Yeah, there was a, that's a great question. There was a lot of pressure to do the second record, which is why some of the photo shoots looks from the same sessions, because we were out on the road just playing all the time. And we did have material uh, for the record. Uh, but yeah, we were being pressured to put another record out, put another record out. Unfortunately, for the Magoos, um, the follow up single to We Ain't Got Nothing Yet was a song called Pipe Dream. Yes. And and the lyrics were you're having a pipe dream, an ordinary pipe dream. Now you see flashing right before your eyes. And the basic hook of the song was come back to reality, where we were pretty much doing an anti-drug song, telling people don't get hung up on drugs. You know, you're having a pipe dream, but come back to reality. Yeah. Unfortunately for the band, the uh, flower power psychedelic movement was getting so huge with the war and everything else that it just scared the hell out of mainstream America. And the WABC network, which was like, if you didn't get the W, if you didn't get the, the ABC network on your record, you didn't have a hit, you know? Uh, so Pipe Dream was hit everywhere else in the United States. But um, when it came to ABC, they said, we're not playing this record. It references drugs, it's too psychedelic. And they banned the record. And the Magoos lost their follow-up single. And thus, that's what gave them the uh, one-hit wonder, um, you know, moniker of that. Because in those days, it's like McDonald's. You throw it up against the wall and you see what sticks, which is still yes. the psyche. You know, you're like, okay, well, they got a hit. Uh, what what their last record do? Oh, their last record did do too good. Okay. And then the, the whole, uh, you know, it was like the Titanic. The whole ship started sinking. Pressure started becoming more. The band was getting ripped off. All the expenses were going to the photographers and the agents and the managers and taxes and all this kind of stuff. And then the demand for the band was dwindling off more and more and more. And um, so, yeah, it was a it was a tough scenario. Yes. Was was what was the, the kind of the the general atmosphere and spirit like for the third album? Because that's where you you know, transition even more, isn't it? And this is much more of a... The spirit of the third album, which I absolutely love as a record, um, was that the band was on the decline, yet we were still committed to do one more record, but we were also breaking away from the management because we were on the decline and... Uh, the guys in the band felt like it was the management's fault and things like that. So instead of going into a studio, we recorded the whole record in our house. We had a house up in the Bronx that time, which we took over 
from Graham Parsons, of all things. And um, Graham Parsons was the first person to successfully get me high on marijuana. Wow, nice. <laughs> By more peppy trivia. And um, <laughs> we took over this house up in the Bronx, and we literally had a whole remote studio come up and sit in a truck, and we put tie lines up throughout the house and everything, and we recorded that whole record in the house. But the spirit for the record was pretty good because we were happy. We were happy in our own environment, not in the constraints of a studio, uh, being rebellious enough to, you know, record our own material and be the masters of our own destiny on it. And um, and I was definitely evolving as a songwriter. Yes. And as a talent, so, uh, you know, my sense of melodics was becoming more and more, my um, you know, depth of a musician was getting better and better and better. So there are some there are things on that record that I absolutely love that I think was great, even though it didn't achieve the success of, you know, Psychedelic Lollipop. Um, the fans of the band to this day and age who people like yourself who go back and look over the history of, you know, that time and the different bands. Um, a lot of people seem to really appreciate basic blues magoos. Yes, absolutely. There's yellow rose and I want to be there with two of the records you, you wrote on that one, isn't it? Side one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there you go. And that was fun to record. And, uh, you know, and, uh, that whole that whole train sequence on the guitar is that was our use of an echoplex and, and the reason the band got into getting into more um, psychedelia was because of the echoplex. It fell off the piano one day in the uh, in the Night Owl Cafe, and we had just bought it. We just pulled all our money to buy an echoplex. We were like, oh, you know, and it fell off the piano, and we're like, oh no, this thing we just bought. It was we all chipped into the you know it was an expensive item for us because we're making peanuts and starving in the village to play, you know. But when we plugged it back in, the speed tape selector had shifted all the way to top. And when we plugged it in, it was going, wow, 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 wow. We were like, oh, God, no, what's that? And then we moved the tape selector and it went, wow, 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 And being guys who were smoking weed all the time at that point, we were like, whoa. We are like, <laughs> that's cool, you know. And so we kind of started incorporating it into the music as a thing of psychedelia and yes. um, and we so, were on top of the curve you know you were on top you were doing it but did the band 68 was this where the band has a major transformation at this point oh no by the time we left the village in 66 uh, we were we were we were doing the psychedelic thing we were like you know we were um uh uh before we even went on tour with the who we were we were playing uh, Tobacco Road and, you know, simulating what we call traffic jams and speed selecting and theremin and all that stuff. So we were we were experimenting with that early before we even had a hit record. Yes. But did you sign to, was it ABC in 1968? Was this kind of a Yeah, change? that was, a, that's my Latin Magoos. Yeah. The the story behind the Latin Magoos is, uh, it's, pretty crazy actually what happened was um as the third record basic blues magoos was starting to um you know run its course the band was tremendously frustrated um with what they were going to do and what they wanted to do 
They were breaking away from the management, everything like this. And I was the baby of the group. And um, I hear different conflicting stories as to how that happened and stuff. But uh, 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 the band basically um, uh, said they're going to LA and they threw me out of the band. They were like, uh, you're no longer in the band. And I'm all of maybe 19 years old now going, huh, what are you talking about? You know, and again, well, we want to go alone. We're going out to California and we're going to continue to be the Magoos. I was mm. like devastated. I was 19 years old. This was my life. Yes. And they didn't give me a um, real reason as to why. They just uh, felt like I was too headstrong or too difficult to deal with, which is totally not who I am, you know. And um, and so uh, I accepted it. You know, I didn't fight or do anything like that. The the management guys were pretty upset about it. And, you know, the band's leaving and they're, in essence, kicking me out of the band. And I was pretty much devastated. It was a it was a it was a real like pull the rug out from underneath your feet type moment for me. And so the management had approached me and they said, listen, we don't think this is right. And you know what? You're you know, they're just jealous of you because you get a lot of attention in the band and you're developing as, you know, one of the main writers and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, that you can come up here and use the office and do whatever you like. So, right. you know, we're here. We're here for you. So I was like, okay, well, at least that's there. So I decided because of my heritage of being half Colombian, I decided at that point that I wanted to be the first Latin rock band to come out. Santana didn't exist and the genre really didn't exist yet. You know, FM was cranking up and stuff like that. So I put a band together that was to be a Latin rock band. And, um, and, and that was it. I had vibes. I had, you know, Congo things. And I was exploring this whole thing because that was my vision was to be the first Latin rock act to come out. That's where I was going to go. Um, I used their offices to, you know, the phones and everything to put ads out and cast people and stuff like that. And when they saw what I was doing, what I didn't realize was that they actually owned the name, the Blues Magoos, and had signed the name to ABC Dunhill. Right. They had, they had then offered it to me. They said, we love what you're doing. We love the band. We want you to still be the Blues Magoos. And I was like, what? They were like, we want you to, we signed the name to ABC. We have a record deal. We, you know, we can do this and we can do that. And you can put a record out and be the Magoos. I said, but this is, I want to be a Latin band. And, and they were like, but come on, we'll send, we'll give you some money. Here's the deal. They offered me a deal. And initially I turned it down because I was like, this is the furthest thing from the blues magoos I, I would ever think of. <laughs> but being a 19-year-old kid, realizing how long it would take me to put a deal together for a new act, starting off from scratch, I felt like it, you know, I may be sitting around for a year starving trying to do this. And I said, said to myself, you know what? Take the deal. If you take the deal, at least you can still keep putting records out and you can st still keep evolving as a talent. Um, in hindsight, it's one of the very few, it's one of two things in my whole life that I've done that where I maybe felt like, mm, if I had it to do over again, I would have done different, or I would have at least said, 
the Latin blues magoos. Right. Yes. You know, which now I can look back on it and go like, hey, it was the Latin blues magoos. But what happened was I started going in. I started uh, exploring this whole thing, this whole music genre. And we were going to come out with a record when the band in L.A., uh, the other magoos heard that the um, that I was ready to come out with a uh, a record as the Blues Magoos, um, they tied us up in court for at least nine months, um, contesting that they were the Blues Magoos and everything else. They lost the case, but in that nine months, Santana came out. And when Santana came out, I went, mm, okay, there, there, there goes that. Uh, but the record came out, never going back to Georgia and stuff like that, a tremendous amount of airplay in New York. On, yes, on, on, on New York radio and stuff like that. And I worked for a year or two off of that till I figured out my way. And um, but that's how that whole thing happened. Um, even in the last incarnation, I got to work with a guy named Pee Wee Ellis, who um, I had met uh, through some people. Uh, uh, Pee Wee was James Brown's musical director. Right. So I was thrilled I to imagine. meet him and work with him. And, you know, I, I, Pee Wee and I became good friends. Um, I saw him just before he passed uh, at his induction into a, a, a local hall of fame in Rochester, New York, where he was from at the Eastman Kodak Theater. I was actually inducting one of the authors of the, the Broadway musical Hair, uh, which I did on Broadway yes. uh, for for a year and a half. And so they had asked me to be a presenter for him and to induct uh, James Rado and that. Uh, James passed away fairly recently now. But when I went up there and saw that Pee Wee was also being inducted, uh, I, I just, we just had the best time in reminiscing and stuff like that. But uh, oh, that's so that, sweet. that was one of the fun things of it all. Uh, in hindsight, I would have called it the Latin Magoos or maybe never did the deal and just tried to stick it out and been a latin rock band or something but you know shoulda woulda coulda it let me move on yes well absolutely you can never you never know what how these things going going to work out so then right. because you did another album which was the gulf coast um a gulf coast bound yeah so that was that and then with all the legality the band finished at that point did did as the did as the sort of 60s come to a close you know we'd had the death of you know, Brian Jones, and then the following year, Jimi Hendrix, J Janis Joplin, Jim uh, Jim Morrison. There was also Altamont. You know, Woodstock was a bit of a mess, wasn't it? Though it was a great film. Did that feel kind of like the 60s had sort of slightly sort of, I don't know, tipped over and crashed, you know, for quite a lot of people? I was more generalised and, and local and self-contained. So, you know, I, I didn't have the tunnel vision like I do now to look back on it. Yes. But when we talk about things like this, I go like, holy shit, glad. Well, I was on all those bills with Joplin and this one, and we played with the doors and the love and the seeds and the whole things. And we did all those festivals. And, you know, when I was a kid in the Magoos, if I heard there was a, a loving or a being in California, I literally just went to the bank, went out to the airport, hopped a plane, just because I wanted to be part of it. And and I just go to Golden Gate Park or, you know, and see like 300,000 people tripping in the, in the park, you know, with this whole movement. So I was very involved with it. You know, I lived in Woodstock at the time. 
you know, there was a lot of precursors we did leading up to the festival. Yes. Like that. And so, no, I didn't, I, you know, it was, yes. I mean, it was like, oh my God, Mama Cass just went, oh, the shit. Hendrix went, oh my God, this one, you know, there was, there was definitely uh, a, a lot of that, you know, uh, but I was more in the moment of like, okay, well, what am I doing? What am I doing next now? Okay, I'm not going to do a band. And then, and then um, this scenario opened up where um, I could be an actor in, in the biggest Broadway show of the, of the decade. Yes. You know? And um, that worked out very well for me. And now I'm on Broadway, uh, you know, acting and singing and still songwriting, making songs, making records, you know, doing stuff like that. So that was an exciting time for me, you know. And, um, and then I started getting into musicals. I wrote a musical called uh, Zen Boogie, which was mounted in uh, Beverly Hills, of all places, in 1978. And that did very well for me. And, and uh, that was really, uh, it was all about, uh, 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 you talk about the, the transformation because the 70s became the me generation. Yes. It became the search for self. You had Scientology, Est, Gestalt, uh, I'm okay, you're okay, transactional analysis, you know. I mean, all these mind disciplines were going up and Zen Boogie was a spoof on that, like a Mad Magazine musical comedy spoof. And um, so having done hair, it was a natural um, transition for me. I wanted to be on the other side of it then. Then it was like, wow, okay, I want to write a musical. I got offered the the job to do it. And um, that worked good for me. And, you know, Cher, everybody in Hollywood came to see that show. The show was too hip to be mounted in New York, oddly enough. Um, but it was like a California hip show, you know. And Cher came, and I had a song in the show called Happy Was the Day We Met. And I'll never forget, at the end of the show, she came up to me almost crying. She goes, oh, my God, I love that song. It reminded, it reminds me of me and Sonny. She goes, uh, could I record it? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, uh, no, you know, what are you kidding me? I would love that, you know. And uh, at that point, Cher was dating Gene Simmons. Oh, wow. Okay, and I, I was part of the whole history thing. I had taught Ace Freely. I'm Ace Freely's first inspiration as to why he plays guitar. Right. I taught him it. I taught him his first guitar chords and all that kind of stuff. Paul Stanley and I were enormous friends at that point in time. Paul would come down and pick me up 20 minutes before the show would end in Beverly Hills and say, come on, I want to see if you get a standing ovation tonight. And uh, they were filming a movie at that point in LA. So we were just all hanging out and, and stuff like that. So it was a, a fun time for me. But yes. uh, you know, it was also very... because, because at the beginning of the 70s, you had Barnaby By, didn't you? And did two albums with that combo. Yes, yes. Yes, Barnaby Bai, uh, oddly enough, I met the Alessi brothers in the Broadway cast of Hair. Right. They, they were in the cast as actors too. Fortunately for me, I was coming off of a hit record. So when I got offered the job, which I had to audition for, um, I just said, listen, I want to join the cast, but I don't want to be in the chorus. I, you know, I'll only take the job if you can guarantee me that I have a principal role. So they gave me a principal role 
and an understudy for another principal role. So at least I was able to do um, a principal role in the show. But I had met Billy and Bobby Alessi there, and um, we joined forces. I loved singing with them because they were identical twins. So it was like, to me, like singing with the Everly Brothers, you know, and I was like a chameleon. I could blend with them, and together we would make these harmonies, and it would sound really <coughs> harmonious. And then as luck would have it, we played one show in Manhattan, and who was in the audience but Ahmed Erdogan? Wowza. That's rather and, cool, isn't it? Yeah. And he took us back to his brownstone that night in between sets on our first gig ever. And in two weeks, we were signed to Atlantic Records. <laughs> nice. That is nice. What was the um, reason for the, the cover? The the kind of rather strange outfit? <laughs> it's so funny. I just did a two-hour two interview the other night. And um, the... That's you're 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 very insightful, actually. The um, once we had signed to Atlantic Records, we had to take press shots for Atlantic, and so we're standing in front of Atlantic Records. Oh my God, I forget the name uh, of the photographer who was Chuck Pullen, I think was his name. Right, he was a, he was a very big, well-known photographer in the scene in New York. There, and so Atlantic said, we need some promo shots in you go outside in front of the bin and take pictures with Chuck Pullen. So we got some wardrobe together. Bobby had a, um, uh, a leather jacket that his girlfriend had sewn for him, but the sleeves were down to his fingers and it was too big. So the rest of us were kind of laughing, going like, Bobby, that jacket, you're swimming in that jacket. But the top looked good. We said, don't worry about it. It's just headshots. It's just headshots. But when I looked at that, because we had gotten signed on our first gig, and all we did was rehearse five or six days in my apartment in Manhattan. We never even rehearsed in a rehearsal hall with gear. We just yes. went up there and played. We didn't even know who we were or what material we were going to have, let alone we're going to be a band, you know. So... I came up with this idea, hey, let's go to this costuming house, which I knew of called Brooks Van Horn at the time. And I said, let's get fat man vaudeville suits and call the record room to grow because we have no idea what we're going to do or who we even are. This way we'll grow into being Barnaby Bye. That was the whole concept behind that. In hindsight, uh, another, another peppy mistake because I was put in front of the shot I was deathly ill that day. I was barfing. I had a stomach virus. I was barfing all day long. And they put me in in the front shot show. I was all of 145 pounds doing eight shows a week. But it looked like I was 350 pounds in that suit. <laughs> so, so I had to live with that. Everywhere we went, everywhere we go, like, hey, where's the fat guy in the front? And they go, man, you lost a lot of weight. I go, Ugh. you know, I didn't even have the strength to tell everybody the story about it. No, but, absolutely. But that was my deal. That was <laughs> that was the moment, wasn't it? You know, yes. Did did being in hair give you a bit of a, an emotional break of that that experience of having six years with the Magoos in the sense of, God, now someone else can look, you know, can tell me what to do. I just have to turn up, do it. I don't have that whole responsibility. These are the numbers. I just have to need to, you know, perform it, keep it together, and that's it. Did, did it actually feel like, oh, that's quite nice for well, a change? Well, oddly, oddly enough, 
as I'm a little rock and roll star in the Blues Magoos with the number three record in the country, I'm running around. And the more stuff that starts to become commercialized about hippies and all this kind of stuff, I'm kind of being a little a little snooty guy going, oh, God, you know, now they're making a show called Hair, you know, based on flower. I thought it was lame. You know, mm -hmm. I just was like, oh, God, the commercialization of all this kind of stuff, you know, uh, you know, I th I'm thinking I'm in the trenches with the hippies from the from the village and stuff like that. And so. I always thought it was the silliest thing on earth. And I'm like, oh God, what are they come out with next now? There's gonna be commercials about everything, about flower powers and all this kind of stuff. So I, to me, I was just like a little snooty kid about it. And then as luck would have it, a buddy of mine named Bones Malone, who's probably the most famous trombone player in the world, right? Now, um, he was he's the trombone player in the Blues Brothers. And um, he was also, the nightly uh, part of the David Letterman band show. Right. You know, he's on TV every night, year after year after year. We shared the same birthday and we were very close friends. He was doing a record for a woman by the name of Dolores Hall, who had a deal on United Artists, I believe at that point, and they were looking for material. So he called me up one day and he said, hey, I'm working on this record. The producer's looking at material. You've got great songs. You want me to turn you on to the guy? And I said, yeah, sure, great. So I sat down with them. They loved my songs. They recorded four of my songs for the record. And Dolores Hall was like one of these preeminent, fabulous singers. And she was, she went on to be in like three or four big Broadway shows where she's hired to come in and tear the house down. You know, the 11th hour song, Jesus Christ Superstar, um, uh, oh, uh, Best Little Whore House in Texas, Hair. But she's in Hair at the time. So she turns around to me and says, hey, you'd make a great burger. And I'm going, what's a burger? She goes, oh, that's one of the big principal characters in the show. They're looking for somebody to take over the role. In, in, in on Broadway. And I think you would be great. I'm like, really? She goes, why don't you come down and see the show? So I went down, saw the show. I knew uh, Shelly Plimpton, who was in the, the original cast. And because she, she was the hostess of the Nidal Cafe before she got the gig at um, on, in Hair at the Biltmore Theater. So I go down and I see the show. I'm sitting in the back and I'm watching the show. And in my mind, I go, Peppy, you fucking asshole. This is the greatest thing you've ever seen in your life. I was blown away by this show. Broadway, lights, fly space, everything, cues, band, kids sing, 24, kids singing. I was blown away. I was like, oh my God, I have to do this. I said, how could you be so stupid to think that this was something lame. This is Broadway. This yes. was unbelievable. So that's it. She brought me backstage at the end. I I was so pumped that I literally went up to the production stage manager that night after I met him. And I said, look, I don't mean to be conceited or anything. And I've never acted a day in my life, but I know I can do better than what you have up there. <laughs> I actually said that to him, which is so out of character for me, you know, but it's how bad I wanted to do it. And they set up an audition for me. My audition day came. Dolores said, come on, I'll go down to the theater with you. I said, great. We took a train from 72nd Street. She lived in the building adjacent to the Dakota where John Lennon lived. And 
and sadly uh, lost his life mm. and um, who I'd gotten to meet. And I'd actually had a, a nice little friendship with John actually. And, um, and so she goes down. And so we're walking out of the train station. I'm three blocks away from the Biltmore theater. And all of a sudden I see kids three blocks away. They're lined up against the wall and I'm walking and I'm seeing a steady stream, a line. And I'm going, I'm thinking, wow, where are these guys going? You know, I get a little closer to the theater and I'm so now I'm starting to realize that they're all, all auditioning for the open call uh, right. for hair at the Biltmore theater. And I go like, Dolores, I said, are, are all these kids auditioning? She goes, yes, but you don't have to be concerned with that. And I went, all right, just dip it. Just <laughs> follow Dolores. And I walked for three blocks past hundreds and hundreds of kids. And I was like, oh my God. I walked in there. I sang one song. They offered me the job on the spot. And I was like, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. It was like, talk about magic. You yes. Know? Absolutely. And um, yeah. And I told them that I'll join the cast as long as you give me a principal role that I don't want to be in the chorus. I don't want to just be in the cast. Like if you give me something that I can sink my teeth into and that's it. I learned the chorus. I did chorus for two weeks because you had to learn where everybody was on stage with all their blockings before you could take over a principal role. So you're not running into everybody. And after that, I, that was it. I did the show for a year and a half, eight shows a week. My God, that must have that must have um, raised your game quite a lot, actually, mustn't it? Oh yeah, that, it but... was it was an incredible experience because you know, I mean, my hair was out like this, and if I walked around Broadway, I had entire families coming up to me. Oh my God, we saw you last night. You were great, you know, and all that stuff because most Broadway actors weren't walking around like the kids in hair, you know. <laughs> so we were marks, you know. So anytime between matinees. If I wanted to go out and get something to eat, you know, it's like you were instantly, you know, that's the guy from here, you know, and it, it was it was a great time. Yes, absolutely. And how did you also, you know, having sort of been in the music world for so long, you know, suddenly in the 70s, there was that kind of glam period. There was prog rock. There was punk. There was kind of new clubs starting like CBGB's and Max's Kansas City. How did you kind of... Um, relate to that or how did did that sort of enter your well, consciousness well barnaby all? by i loved it was it was a magical little sound even though you know the records could have been better the band live was always great and it the magic of sitting down with two of the guys and and our drummer who could sing and come up with these harmonies that only we could do was just something I, I was always enamored. Even to this day, if we go out and do a reunion gig or something like that, you suit up, you go out there and you sing and just go, son of a gun. It's still like oh, that little flowering harmonious thing that only we do, you know. It didn't matter to me that the world didn't pick up on it or anything. It was something I loved. So, yes. um, the frustration was was that we were out of sync, you know, because um, the New York Dolls were getting five pages in the magazines to Barnaby Buys little paragraph. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we were going from real talent and these guys were glamming on the street and, you know, in, in the moment and stuff like that. So it was tough. And plus, 
we had made the mistake of when we signed with Atlantic, we thought that if we didn't keep Ahmed Erdogan's interest, we were going to get passed over by all their their platinum recording artists. Yes. So we told Ahmed we would only sign with Atlantic if he co-produced with us, which he agreed to. Unfortunately, in reality, we could have had Arif Mardin, who was like one of the greatest arranger producers on the planet, you know, which we would have been better off to wait for. And because Ahmed had to deal with Led Zeppelin and, you know, and Donny Hathaway and, and um, Bette Midler and all this kind of stuff, he was never around. Right. <laughs> you know, where's Ahmed? Oh, he's in Turkey. Where's Ahmed? Oh, he's in England with Led Zeppelin. Zeppelin, where's I'm all this? So we were left to our own devices, and everybody at Atlantic was saying, Don't go near Barnaby Bye, because if you fuck that up, you don't have a job, because that's Ahmed's pet project. So everybody, everybody who worked for Atlantic, they were like, Don't go near those guys, because if you make a mistake, you're out of job, because Ahmed loves these guys. So the first record was us and Gene Paul which was um, uh, um, um, uh, the magic, the magic, uh, um, uh, come on, the, the greatest guitar player of all time, uh, um, the, uh, Les Paul. Right. Les Paul. Was Les Paul's son. Gene even had Les Paul come in and sit in the sessions with us and in the studio because he wanted to show him like this, this new band he's working on in Atlantic it's like, I didn't even want to pick up a guitar around Les Paul. I was like, whoa, you know, like, oh, I don't even want to play. You know, don't, don't make me play in front of Les Paul. Holy crap. I was so intimidated, you know, uh, being such a young musician, you know. But, yes. um, but we were left to produce ourselves in the studio for the most part with Gene Paul. So, uh, so that falls a little short. But, you know, there's still some magic in those records. You can hear some of those vocal things and just go, wow, these guys are like little BGs or something. Yes, know? absolutely. Because then in the early 80s, you 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 would start another band, don't you, called Balance? Yeah. And then obviously the musical landscape is changing quite a lot because the 80s in the UK, you know, we'd had that kind of, I suppose politically things changed again, you know, 79, you know, Margaret Thatcher gets in and there's, you know, the sort of, I don't know, the introduction of, I suppose, more rock and more confidence in a lot of the songs that are being released. So what was it mm -hmm. like for you in America during the that period? And, and, and how did the band balance? What was the kind of reason for sort of starting that? Well, the reason was, was that I was signed to the management team of uh, Steve Lieber and David Krebs who at that point had maybe 14 platinum artists, you know? So I'm like starting out the top and working my way down because I'm a baby artist in the shadows of the Def Leppard and Aerosmith and Nugent and uh, Parliament Funkadelics, Golden Earring, Scorpions, Joan Jett, yeah, Michael. I, I mean, there was like, you know, the, their roster was enormous, but they did love me. They produced my musical in uh, 1978, and they always felt that I was kind of a special little guy um, because I could dance in theater and I could dance in rock and stuff like that. So I had been working on a solo deal I was going to have. They were working on a solo deal with me, and they were all ready to do a solo deal with Ronald Luxemburg, who was getting a custom label. And after a year, 
and change of doing that, his funding got pulled out from underneath him and the deal fell through. I became tremendously frustrated and said like, oh, because all I want to do is be a singer songwriter and go out and play and stuff like that. And so at that point I said, you know what? I don't want to deal with this stuff. I'm going to go stack the deck. I'm going to go out and get a bunch of guys who are heavy hitters and things like this and package a band like a Toto, even though I wasn't thinking that in those days, like a Toto, but in hindsight, it's something similar, you know, and I had re-met Bob Kulik through Paul Stanley. Paul came over to my apartment one day and said, hey, man, I want you to meet my friend Bob Kulik. And I looked at Bob and I went, I know you. And I had met Bob in the early days of the village. He was in a floundering band back then and a little younger than me. And um, I said, oh, my God, I used to see you all the time in the village. Holy shit. You know, it was like, whoa. Uh, so that was pretty, pretty funny. Sorry, yes. unfortunately, my phone goes through there. Um, he, so I was amazed to see that. And then I realized that Bob had a huge history with Paul and ghosting some of Ace's rec- uh, uh, solos in the early days and stuff like that. And Bob was tremendously frustrated. And he said, come on, let's start a band. Let's start a band. So then we enlisted uh, Andy Newmark, Willie Weeks, you know, and I had a, a, a buddy of mine, Doug Katsaris, who's a, just a, a musical genius. And so we packaged the band and, and uh, we started rehearsing. And then all of a sudden the buzz started happening. And, uh, you know, and I had a lot of interest over at Epic Portrait uh, label on myself as a soloist. So as this band started materializing, uh, little things like that, it's, we started getting a little noise. And then I always loved that the balance switch on a, a stereo yes. is left and right. And so then I just started thinking the balance of nature, the balance of life, balance, this balance in music. It's, it's the balance is everything and what you hear in the final mix and things like that. And I actually had a woman in the band by the name of Beth Sussman because I wanted male, female, black, white in the band. I wanted it to be the, this was my vision. Unfortunately, I allowed myself to get prostituted by Bob who had an overzealous amount of testosterone and said, no, it's gotta be a heavy rock band. We shouldn't have a woman in the band. And he was very headstrong about it. And, and I allowed that to happen. And so that to me was one of my regrets, but, yeah. uh, the band was great, you know, and Andy and Willie played on the first record. And then we had uh, Chuck Burgey on the uh, second album. But Chuck has now been Billy Joel's drummer for the last 15 years. You know, um, as a matter of fact, uh, I'll send you a link. Uh, you know, Bob Kulik died. Uh, I'm, I would guess you know who he is. Yes. Yes. Bob passed away last year. And um, uh, I wrote this song uh, with Doug and um, and uh, it's called The World I Used to Know. And I packaged a video. It's up on YouTube. The World I Used to Know, Pepe Castro, they may say, or Balance, something like that. And um, because I wanted to do one last thing that had Balance's name on it that I could feel proud of. Uh, uh, Bob roped me into a, doing a record uh, a while back uh, called Equilibrium on Frontiers and um, I was very unhappy with the record and Bob we apologized to me four years later 
because Bob controlled the whole thing and didn't keep his word to me on an artistic level, you know, yeah. and it was like a poor man's balance to me. I was not happy with it. And so I did this one last song, which I think is wonderful. It's part tribute and part the whole deal of the, the world I used to know, like the world is changing so much. And, um, yeah, you know, if you've never seen it, I'll send it to you. Yes, it's, I'd love to it's, see it. It's, 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 it's quite good. It's a lot of fun. I'm very proud of it. Same thing I did with the Magoos. I did a thing that I was in the uh, Woodstock Film Festival called um, Nowhere is Somewhere, which is like a typical, you know, Zen boogie, Magoo uh, kind of freak out kind of title and stuff like that. So in my, in my old age, I've been putting little things to go out on a high for my own peace of mind. So that if anybody ever looks back and says, well, what's the last thing they ever did? I can say, well, I did this for balance. I did this for the Magoos. I can tie it up in a bow and keep going on. Feel good about it. How did you then, because you do two albums with balance and then that's the end of that. How do you then maneuver the rest of the eighties for you? How do you sort of find your next path? Uh, I oddly enough, the, the rest of the eighties, um, a music production house offered me uh, a gig uh, to be a writer and um, uh, and write, sing, produce um, commercials. So right. I wrote jingles in New York, aside from writing songs uh, for other people. Um, I wrote jingles in New York for 20 years. And, you know, they were all um, major uh, network television uh, which meant they were uh, the under the domain of the Screen Actors Guild because TV was film. So I got vested in the Screen Actors Guild, having done 20 years uh, in the in the jingle business. And so I was able to, to to not have to tour, to not have to be rock bands. I you know I I had married. Uh, I uh, had a, a a son who's now 34 who writes and sings and plays, uh, Jesse Castro. And, um, you know, I was able to earn a living doing music. And it was a challenge because you had to be very, very sharp. And only the best people, the A-list musicians in New York were the guys who got to play on these things. And so I did that for 20 years and then went back to the musicals now. And my songwriting, I, I put things up for myself. Thankfully, I'm retired. Yes, that's amazing. You know? Yes, it's yeah. nice. Because, but then you into was it 2008? You get the the Magoos have a, a sort of reform. So what? Was, yeah, we had a little we had a little reunion because I started getting so many fan letters and people and and saying you know like you know oh you know like the Magoos was such a part of my life or I met my wife at the first Blues Magoos you know, content and different things like this. As a matter of fact, Bruce Springsteen's first concert he ever saw that made him want to be a musician was that Who tour in New Jersey at, uh, uh, I think, Constitution Hall or something like that. And um, the Magoos opened the show, the Who came on, he saw the Magoos trash the equipment. He said, that's it. <laughs> If this is what I want to do. Right. I want to be a, I want to be a musician. So it's fun to see those little things along the way um, and stuff. But I was able to earn a living, uh, a, a nice, reasonable living, you know, by uh, it was very competitive because you had to win the accounts, you know, made the best song win. 
and mm. things like that. And I did that for 20 years. Um, as a matter of fact, right now, um, uh, because of Steve Lieber, who's the lead producer on this, uh, he's the lead producer on a show called Warhol. Right. It's, it's sanctioned by the Andy Warhol Foundation. And the director is one of your countrymen. Uh, the director is Sir Trevor Nunn. Oh, yeah. Who directed Cats and Les Mis. Uh, yeah. I believe he ran the Royal Shakespearean Theater for many, many, many years. Uh, Trevor is my co-author on six songs that I have in the show. And I think they're looking at Wembley in 2023 to maybe open this thing up in a tent a la Cirque du Soleil or something like that. Oh, right. This is amazing. Yeah. So I'm. it's part of my retirement, but I'm very, very happy about it. It's very powerful stuff. Uh, Doug from uh, uh, Balance, Doug Katsaris, uh, is the musical director. He's also the co a co-author with me on that. Doug actually has more songs in it. I got Doug involved um, uh, as it started developing. But the show was scripted, recorded, documented, filmed, choreographed, everything. And uh, Trevor is the lyricist, and he's also the director of the show. And, and uh, Steve and the, Lieber is the lead producer on it. And that show is called? Warhol. Warhol. Oh, yeah. Oh it's going to be called Warhol. They, they were looking at Broadway. They're looking at New York. Trevor wants to do a tent, from what I understand, because he can't find anything in the West End that will accommodate his vision of huge digital screens. Blimey. And what yeah. was the company Cirque du Soleil, did you say? What's oh. that? What was the company that was doing this production? Well, well it's Steve Lieber. And uh, it's Steve Lieber, who was uh, who produced Beatlemania. He was also my manager at Lieber Krebs, were were the big management team, and um, so uh, uh, Steve, uh, along with his girlfriend Bonnie Lautenberg, who is uh, uh, she is the widow of a, a big senator in New York who passed away, uh, Frank Lautenberg. Uh, Bonnie and Steve are the producers of the show. They cut the deal with Trevor, and um, uh, Rupert Holmes wrote the book. Uh, Rupert Holmes had a very lucrative uh, musical career, but he's also had a very big theatrical career as well. Yes. And so, so as of now, it looks like they're talking about Wembley uh, late in 2023. I'm yes. sitting on the sidelines. My songs are in there. And um, it's, 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 it's got some great, great theatrical pieces in there. You know, all Andy's best 15 minutes of fame, you know, all the, all his little uh, token phrases that became. Yes, his little uh, mannerisms. Oh, this is very yeah. exciting. I didn't so know. That, you know. So that's one of the things waiting in the wings for me. Yes. You know? What was it like? Because you did an album with the uh, Blues Magoos, didn't you? Psycho, was it Psychedelic Resic Resurrection? Well, a, a resurrection. Well, that was pretty much my idea. And I knew everybody would say psychedelic erection, thinking that the, the, for the dirty minds out there, because everybody <laughs> said, what is that? Psychedelic erection? What is that? No, no. So uh, psychedelic resurrection was uh, my idea because uh, I guess I'm more visual, visible than all the other guys. Yes. And um, so I would get fan mail over the years, over the years. And I said, you know what? You got to bury, bury, forgive me, forgive, you got to uh, 
bury any animosity or things like this. And like, if there are still uh, a handful of people out there that still love the Magoos and that are still fans, then, you know, do it for them, you know? And so, um, so Ralph, I got pretty much everybody involved, you know, for the most part, uh, and some auxiliary members. And um, I recorded the whole thing myself in my, my home studio. I put it together, workshopped it, pretty much produced the whole thing myself. And, um, and it's a fun stuff there. It was fun to re-record some of the old stuff. And uh, it was fun to write some new things. Yes. And it was just fun to put a cap on the Magoos. And there are some really, really uh, uh, fun little things in, in that uh, thing. Of course, I never shopped the label. I never tried to put it out or anywhere. It's just sitting in the abyss somewhere for whatever Magoo fans um, uh, seem to enjoy it. Um, I still get calls from CD Baby. Uh, we need some more CDs. We need more CDs. Oh, okay. You know, and I send them over a bundle and they, they seem to sell little bits here and there and yes. stuff like that. Because you've done a solo album, didn't you, quite a few years ago, just beginning? Yeah, I did my, uh, oh, uh, by the way, I am lucky and blessed enough that I have uh, 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 gotten uh, remarried uh, this last January. Blimey, that's very impressive. And to the, the most gorgeous woman on the face of the planet. And she's just handed me a nice little drink here. My she God, that is, that is love, field. isn't it? Love is still all around. God, that's fantastic. So, yes, that was nearly 10 years ago, your last album. But you've been bringing out singles, haven't you? You've done quite a few singles in the last couple of years. I don't know why, and it's our time. I do it for me. I'm retired. I don't play the game. I don't play the streaming game. I'm not going to pay for play and do all that kind of stuff. I do it because it's my passion, just like it's always been. I would have paid to be a musician, yes. <laughs> you know, because it's the love. I never did it for chicks. I never did it for money. I did it because I had no other choice. It was my addiction. I had to do it. It was my calling. And so I do that. The Just Beginning CD happened because of my long friendship with Richie Havens. He called me about a year before he passed away. And he called me up and he said that he was doing a command performance at the Cannes Film Festival. Right. And he was like, wow, do you believe that? I said, I said, Richie, that's great. He goes, they're giving, a, they're giving an award to Sean Penn. And they asked him who his favorite recording artist was. And he said, Richie Havens. So they hired Richie to do a command performance for Sean Penn at the Cannes Festival. And I said to Richie, I said, Richie, you know what? We're getting away with murder to be doing what we're doing at our age. And he said, hey, man, you know, it's a little hippie voice. He said, hey, man, I'm just getting started. I'm just beginning is what he said to me. And so I laughed and I said, Richie, you know what? I said, when we hang up, I'm going to go downstairs into my studio and write a song. And I wrote this song called Just Beginning. Thankfully, I was able to send it to him before he passed away. Excellent. But that was the whole thing that was inspired by a, an hour long phone call with Richie Havens, uh, you know. Amazing, amazing. I mean, so how do you, how have you managed, you know, like going from the 60s, which is, um, yes, you know, from the early 60s, which is over 60 years now, isn't it? Doing the maths here. How have you managed to sort of maintain a sort of a, a balance in your, in your emotional and spiritual state? I mean, this is music. This is one, 
This is one of the most tricky things in life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's where I'm very blessed because I've been able to function playing music as a working musician and fly under the radar, you know? But there was always things, you know? I had two, I had big songs with Diana Ross. There was a nice chunk of change, share chunk of change, kiss chunk of change. So between the the jingle royalties and the songwriting royalties it kind of uh you know to be a, a to be a musician in the united states with a pension is like you know there they're not too many of us <laughs> you know so yes. I, i'm very blessed in that respect and i got to say the jingle career kept me on my toes like when sequencing came in and digital recording and stuff like this. I always had that little good angel, bad angel in my head saying, well, you know, the bad angel was like, listen to all your musician friends because, you know, synthesizers are putting them out of work, you know, because you can now do strings and synthesize strings and all these guys are not getting called for sessions anymore, you know, and you can do horns and all this stuff and you can do digital recording and things like this. And the good angel was like, Pepe, if you don't embrace this technology, you're going to be a dinosaur. So as it came in, I embraced the technology. And I mean, everything I do is in the digital realm but I can make it sound analog uh, because yes. I, I come from analog, you know, and it still comes down to groove and songs and melodies and stuff like that. So even with the videos I put out, I don't care that I'm a major music, a major video production house. I'm learning by myself just on iMovie and I'm having fun just yes. by, you know, winging it and things like that. So I'm enjoying myself. Thankfully, if I live within my means, I haven't had to work for quite some time, you know, Excellent. and, you know, I'm fortunate to have a home down here in Florida and I have a home in New York and I wake up in the morning I go to the beach, I'll write lyrics on the beach, I'll go out and jump in the pool. Um, I do projects and things that come to me that I like. I'm working with a company called World IPI and... Um, they have so many inventions and patents in them, one of which is um, uh, uh, for holograms. And it's really revolutionizing. Um, it's going to revolutionize the way things are done and SGI and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the lead person behind all the inventions um, is anonymous. He's probably a billionaire. He started more billionaire companies Um than anybody, he's a, he's an architectural genius, mm -hmm. and he's a corporate architect. He invents things, starts the industry, sells them the patent or the the whole thing, and moves on to something else. And he's very very brilliant. But he has in his contract anything over a million dollar contract, he has to remain anonymous. He's just one of these crazy crazy inventive benefactors and i love him to death and he we're the same age and so we have a kinship i've met him fairly recently but he's got me involved in things like my, i have a musical um called x star 
that I started in 1979 with Stan Lee from Marvel Comics. Right. Um, we couldn't cut a deal with Marvel back then. And in the year 2000, I went on my own and wrote it on my own with my own characters, my own concept. But uh, this company is willing to do something with me to where my musicals will be streamed instead of having to go into the realm of live theater and yeah. Broadway and the expense and all that kind of stuff. Right now, New York is hurting so much. People don't even want to get on the subways because there's so much crime. So, you know, it's got to affect commerce and everything else. We were going to do Warhol there, but, you know, how, how do you ask people to come in uh, uh, from out of town, uh, you know, uh, stay at a Midtown hotel and have to get on a subway to go see a show in some theater someplace that ends at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and then take their life into their hands going back, you know, or take Ubers and things like this. So, you know, I don't know. New York's a very strange place right now. Yes. Know, it's uh -huh. bouncing back, but the world is really, really not the way it used to be, the world I used to know, you know. And um, so between Warhol and me getting involved in this new company and just putting out music for myself, I'm happy. It's a passion I do. I got a, um, I'm doing a video now just on one of those songs from uh, the Just Beginning CD because my wife loves the song Here for the Ride. Excellent. She loves it so much that I said, okay, so why don't I just do a video? And so I'm having fun, you know, being creative it's, Warhol it's a, will make my stock go up if it's a big hit obviously my phone will start ringing again i'm sure yes uh, you know of things like that but uh, it sounds good it sounds good if you could have whispered something to your like 16 year, year old self starting out is there any little word of wisdom or advice or little hint that you would have told them even if they would have ignored it at that stage you know you were you were playing true, truant, weren't you? But <laughs> I think I just, just don't um, don't fall into the pitfalls, the traps. You know, the um, don't believe the hype. If you become successful, you right. know, so many people I know in the business, they just think they're God's gift because, you know, they believe the hype, and you know, and all of a sudden, you know. They lose sight of reality. They don't, they've left the real world. You know, they're in that microcosm of, you know, like, oh, well, I can't come unless this, or is there a chef? I'm not coming to New York unless, you know, you provide a chef for me or that, you know, I'm like, huh? what? Come on, we'll go run around the beach. We'll have fun, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, so um, I would just say uh, you have to see, unfortunately, to make it, you have to be able to sacrifice. You got to be able to, to gamble. You know, I took the gamble, but the gamble was I had no other choice. I gave mm -hmm. myself no other choice. There was no safety net. You know, I'm not going to have an education. I'm not going to go to school. This is, I have to do this no matter what. And there's no flying Melinda's with a, a safety net down on the bottom. You know, if I fail, I fail, I, I fail trying, you know? And so to me, I've always seen the distance every time I've seen so many people try and have an education and break into the business. And somehow it never worked out. Most of the times there are exceptions 
to the rule because mm. there's being in the right place at the right time, luck, timing, and talent. I would just say people, whatever it is, do what you love. That's it. Do what you love. I taught a course in a, a local college in New York uh, called Finding Your Ladder. And when I went into the kids, 24 kids, I said, okay, how many kids know what they want to do? Maybe two hands showed up, you know? And if I asked one kid, well, what do you, what do you love? He goes, well, I love baseball, but I had an injury and I'll never be able to pursue my dream. I was like, duh. I was like, if you love baseball, you can be a commentator. You can be an agent, mm. you know? Uh, you you can do so many things that are interesting. Why would you go end up in a job somewhere that you're going to hate for the next 20 years and be miserable? Find the, just whatever your passion is, find your passion, find yes. what you love and just pursue your dream. Do what you love. There's many ways to be involved in things that you love if it's not the ultimate, you know, but if you don't do what you love, I mean, you obviously love what you're doing right now. Yes, this is true. You do. I can feel it and I can see it. And therefore, you know, isn't that the key to life? This is true. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's um, it's the thing that we we get driven by, isn't it? And the thing that we yeah, keep coming exactly. back to. And you, you know, I mean, if you had to leave your plumbing job to come here and just do this interview, you know, and you're all sweaty and greased and you hate plumbing and you don't like the smells and you the mask and your sweating pipes and all this kind of stuff, you know, you'd probably be miserable. Whereas yeah. there are plumbers out there who love what they do. You know, they like making people happy. They like going into their homes and fixing things for people and, you know, getting the pat on the back. I mean, an honest day's work is fabulous, but I would say to anybody doing anything in life, just find something that you love. And keep going with it. Yes. Well, this is it. good. Yes. Well, look, thank you ever so much for your time. This has been amazing. And um, God, yeah, this has been, you know, you've said so many incredible things uh, to um, go away. And... Well, it's my pleasure, David. It's great. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're in the UK staying up so late, number one. <laughs> uh, number two, I'm thrilled that Uncut is going to be doing a massive, massive, like 40,000 word. I mean, this thing's going to be massive on the Magoos which I'm really thrilled. I have journalist friends in Europe. They're going, Uncut's great, you know, and I am i don't think of Uncut in my daily life. No, you know? but, um, no, it's but a, I yeah. know it's still an impressive piece. Yes. And stuff like that. So that's great. And um, I'll send you some stuff. Yes. I, and um, I'll do some, yeah, I'll definitely, yeah, I'll definitely look up this Warhol uh, production as well, which sounds really Yeah, you won't find much on it unless you know people involved with Trevor. Yes. you know, in, in, in the UK, cause it's still under wraps. Number one, they're still kind of keeping it kind of low keyed, you know, uh, but it's going to be, obviously it's going to be powerful, you it's know, be it's amazing. Warhol, it's you know, be and, and it's Trevor and Sir Trevor Nunn. I mean, you know, right there. I mean, how many, how many countrymen get the rise to the, the moniker of Sir, this you is know, true. This is true. A, a night at Sir Show. I'm just thrilled to be involved with it. You know, it must be great to still, have, yes, have that kind of ins that kind of call to sort of. Yeah, write David, up. it's been a pleasure, man. I'm, yes, I'm, I'm a happy camper. So we shall uh, continue on into the great abyss with our friendship. Yes, and, definitely. Um, and I'll send you things now as well. Okay, thanks, and I'm, yeah, take my care. pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. 
have a lovely evening. And you um, too. Um, dinner okay. is on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Take we'll care. see you later. Bye bye. Yes, bye bye. And that was me in conversation with Pepe Castro talking about his life in music from the Blues Magoos. To the current day, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just, um, yes, that's it, really. Keep it positive and groovy, please. Also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Come on. What not to like? Anyway, have a great week and stay safe.